0: Daniel, lovely to meet you, and uh, thank you for taking time to talk to us.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Hey, I got, Whereabouts are you based? Where are you right now?
1: I'm actually based in Colombo in Sri Lanka. So that's pretty much where I spend most of my time. Um, but yeah, when, I, when I'm working in a non-COVID world, it involves quite a bit of travel,
0: both within Sri Lanka, but also outside internationally. How did you end up in Sri Lanka? I mean, obviously, well, I assume you're not from there.
1: I am actually Sri Lankan. Oh. So, uh, I, yeah, so I'm, I'm, well, I'm technically half Sri Lankan, half German. But I was born here and I've grown up here, spent
0: pretty much all my life here in Sri Lanka. Fantastic. I've never been, but um, it, it sounds a wonderful place.
1: Yeah, I hope you make it at some point and get oh, to see some you. of the things that we do as well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think COVID and flights, you know, make, make visiting places a little awkward right now, but yeah. well, sorry. Um, co-founder of the Blue Resources Trust. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, once I finished my studies, when I started, you know, trying to do a bit of research here in Sri Lanka, I came across quite a few challenges. I would imagine challenges that many others face in developing countries, you know, trying to get the research permits and, you know, trying to, you know, get through all the bureaucratic processes which can be quite tedious in countries like Sri Lanka. So uh, having encountered these struggles and having, you know, met one or two others who faced similar issues along with a friend of mine, uh, Nishan Pereira, who's another marine biologist, we decided to co-found Blue Resources Trust. And the intention of this organization is not just to facilitate our own research interests, but also to establish a platform uh, that both local and international students and scientists can make use of to basically further marine research in the country and the region. So that's, that's pretty much the premise behind setting up
0: uh, Blue Resources Trust. So how does that work practically? Uh, how does it manifest itself?
1: Uh, well, we have a few uh, key research focuses, I would say. So for example, uh, my focus is on uh, sharks and rays and elasmobranch fisheries. And I also uh, do a bit of uh, policy work both at a national and a, an a international scale. Uh, Then, for example, uh, Nishan, the other co-founder, he focuses quite a bit more on the uh, coral reefs and fish ecology. And then we have another director who uh, works on seagrass. So we kind of have these three focuses with, of course, the policy, uh, you know, connecting all three components together. And of course, you know there are other overlaps that we have since you know we kind of look at it as an ecosystems based approach rather than species-specific as much as possible. So that's you know I would say the three streams of research that we have. But then we also provide opportunities, uh, let's say for Sri Lankan students, if they're doing their undergraduate thesis project or their graduate thesis projects, we provide them with uh, scholarships. Uh, So we, you know, cover basically their food, accommodation, transport, and all research associated costs. So that's something that we do for Sri Lankan students. And then for international students, we provide uh, internship opportunities. Those uh, do come at a cost. Unfortunately, we're not able to provide everything free of charge, but there is a minimal charge which includes, for example, their food and accommodation as well, and then gives them an opportunity to conduct research in Sri Lanka.
0: That sounds very good. Very good. But uh, you mentioned scholarships and things. Uh, Where does that money come from? How do you, how do you fund everything?
1: Yeah, funding, I would say is the
0: never ending struggle, which, uh, you know, I mean, again, it's not,
1: it's not unique to us in Sri Lanka or to any other marine organization for that matter. Uh, our funding comes from a variety of sources. We apply for a lot of international research grants. But we also have a little bit of uh, corporate support from companies in Sri Lanka that support our long term uh, goals you know of basically i mean i would I would say one of our core focuses is long term research, so we're not keen on you know just a short project for six months or twelve months with a few flashy workshops just to say that one has done something. Our goal is to collect as much data as we can ideally over decades so that we can see the trends and then provide, uh, you know, effective policy to the government that can actually make changes on the ground. So because of that, it's quite challenging, you know, when it comes to funding, but so far we have been quite lucky with a a mixture of funders both within Sri Lanka and internationally. And then for example, with the scholarship program, the way it works is we actually offsetting some of the costs that the international students provide. I would actually like to be very transparent at this point in time because I know there's a lot of negativity surrounding these paid internships and I do understand the reasons behind that. I mean, I myself struggled when I tried to find internships and you know most of these organizations were charging several thousand dollars for a one month internship in some fancy country. So The way we do it is we're basically charging 450 US dollars a month from international interns who are with us and we provide them food and accommodation for that price. And then the other thing that we do is we structure their internship in a manner that they actually have an opportunity, if they do three months with us, to publish a paper. So we try to structure their project in such a way that it actually results in a clear scientific output that they can publish which, of course, also uh, benefits, you know, them, their career development in turn. In so, you know, we try to s- set it up a bit more like, you know, I would say similar to a course at a university. You're not just paying it for an experience, you're paying it to get something a bit further than a, an than a experience. And all of that money, you know, from our research grants together with these students paying is what we use to provide scholarships to local students.
0: Sounds good, okay. actually as you were talking I was just looking at your website, um, <laughs> I'm sure you get asked this a lot, um, Tokyo Cement Group is a, as a, is a big, uh, as a new supporter or funder, I mean it's, it's just the name, the name says Tokyo Japan, which isn't brilliant for conservation, and Cement Group, is, how is that working?
1: Uh, so Tokyo Cement has actually been one of our long-term uh, supporters of our research, and uh, you know we are actually extremely grateful for their support because it uh, provides a lot of core funding. Uh, you know, for example, for the running of our field station operations, uh, you know, to support our director of operations. It's funds that's often quite challenging to obtain from other traditional research grants because a research grant is usually targeted just towards a specific project with a specific outcome, and not really for the long-term running of an organization of the core uh, expenses. You know, I mean, we have, let's say, well, we have two field stations actually in Sri Lanka, one on the east coast and one on the north, and it, you know, it, it requires a lot of maintenance to keep these places running, you know, the monthly rent of the premises Uh, you know, electricity costs to maintain our freezers where all our specimens are stored. So uh, a lot of this is quite challenging sometimes to support through traditional research grants, and we've been fortunate to have, uh, you know, corporate sponsors such as Tokyo Cement. And while it can certainly potentially come across a bit, I suppose, counting QEQ or something that, you know, you have this large uh, company that, you know, on one hand, one could argue is definitely well is is potentially a source of a lot of pollution uh, like any other industrial company that exists. Uh, You know a lot of people question is it ethical to be taking funds from such an organization and it's 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 not you know it's not a simple answer and and you know there are people that debate this for years but what I can say is that there are some organizations out there that are genuinely trying to at least offset negative impacts. And that is something that should be recognized because at the same time, there are lots of companies that are not even making the effort. And I think I would sort of differentiate between organizations that, let's say, try to manipulate the outputs of your research. And that is something one has to really differentiate because, for example, Tokyo Cement has absolutely no involvement in the research that we choose to do or in the outputs that we have. They just merely provide us funding. They like the work that we do. And, you know, that's as far as it goes. And, you know, we have had very open conversations with a lot of uh, funders who come from corporate backgrounds and they have, you know, tried to incorporate changes into how they operate. It's not an easy process. But then at the same time, where does marine funding come from at a global scale? It's, you know, a lot of large international funders also you know, got their money through oil companies or whatever, you know, you can trace back pretty much every funding source to something that is potentially unethical or uh, not having a, you know, completely positive
0: environmental impact. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, you've, <laughs> you actually answered a lot of my questions that I was just going to bring up. You, you, you covered it, but it is, it, it's an issue that's been going on forever and I'm sure will continue going on you know it's it's where does funding come from and and actually, a lot of us fund this stuff through our investments in our banks and stuff without even knowing it it's it's uh, not all things are as transparent as we'd like so um, I thank you for your answer on that 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 actually cleared up a lot for me.
1: I think, I mean, that's a good point that you raised, you know, I mean, you know, just taking a bank as an example, we put our money there, but I mean, they're investing it in return, and we have no idea where or what, you know, so it may not always be the most environmentally friendly choice either. But I think it's the world that we live in, there are compromises. And at the end of the day, if one is using the funding for something good, I think it's better than that funding going just into some other Activity
0: that potentially makes things worse. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me, what, what do you think is the most um, important aspect of your work?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know if I can really pinpoint just one component. It's, you know, everything interlinks the research that we, that we carry out on the ground, you know, we have to be very careful to ensure that that is as accurate and as representable of the uh, situation as possible, while at the same time ensuring that, you know, let's say a policy recommendation we give to the government is something that is feasible and can be implemented. Uh, I think many organizations across the world struggle with this gap between the science and the policy. And there is this communication mismatch. Uh, you know I would say that I originally came more from a research background and we have a more idealistic view of the world. You know for example we see a species of shark that's being overfished and we're like it's overfished it must be protected and that's it. But we don't really think about the complexities of uh, you know the actual conservation process the, you know, how one actually goes about protecting a species, you know, there are livelihoods that have to be taken into consideration. And yeah, many, many different aspects and, you know, simple practicalities that one sometimes doesn't consider. And I think it's this gap between science and policy that has been causing a lot of issues internationally. And we are hoping that we can kind of fill in that gap.
0: That's yeah, an interesting thing you say. I mean the, the gap between research and science and the practical issue of species and ecosystems are disappearing still at an alarming rate. It, one wonders just how much more research there is to do before sensible effective action to protect what we have takes place.
1: Yes, and I think that is again something that, let's say traditional scientists struggle with a lot. Uh, you know, there's there's never enough research. There's never enough data. You know, science keeps evolving, technology keeps evolving, we can improve the methodology. Uh, you know, we could, you know, like I say, we are focusing on long-term data here. Uh, if you speak to a statistician, skeptic, they say it's at least nine years of comprehensive data collection before you can start seeing a trend in species, you know, whether it's a decline or an increase. And you know, that's a lot of time, sometimes time that species don't necessarily have. So it is, I think this constant battle, uh, again, I would say largely between, you know, the policymakers and the scientists, where the policymakers are like, you know, give me an answer, what do we do now? And the scientists are either saying we don't have enough data, or they have the data and they won't uh, a change that the policymakers are not happy with. So it's it's this yeah constant battle between the two and I would say it comes down uh, to a negotiation and a compromise. Uh, you know both parties have to give in at some stage. The scientists have to say okay we don't have all the data that we need but it, uh, this is what appears to be the case. We should potentially adopt a precautionary approach and you know be a bit more careful when it comes to this species knowing that they are uh, not as reproductive as many other species so yeah it's it's just a lot of a lot of difficult conversations that one really has to have when one when one brings these different parties together
0: i do understand and appreciate how crucial and important research is you know for that data but it seems to me that as we go on year after year after year, nobody looks at the personal point of view, your, your eyes, your experiences, people experiences all around the world, let's say reefs have gone, fish have disappeared, um, ecosystems are now gone as well. I mean, that never seems, as far as I can see, to be taken into account by policymakers. Are they really only listening to hard data? Uh that's
1: uh that's a good question. And I, I, I would say it really varies be, you know from let's say politician to politician or policymaker to policymaker. I it's you know yes and no. I mean I, I see the, the struggles that the policymakers have with just using people's opinions because if you speak to Uh, fishers across the world. This is not unique just to Sri Lanka, you know, uh, even in developed countries and all that. A lot of the time the fishers are like, oh no, there's no problem actually, you know, there are skilled fish in the ocean. Uh, It's just that we're not fishing hard enough anymore. Uh, So, you know, you get those counter arguments that come as well. So it's trying to make a balance of, okay, do you trust this fisher who's been going out to sea for 50 years, who claims that, you know, actually this shark is skilled, incredibly abundant, because it's also obviously playing a big role for his uh, livelihoods. Or does one believe this scientist who has spent, you know, their entire time probably sitting in front of a computer crunching numbers and hasn't even seen one of these sharks in person, alive or dead. Uh, you know, who, who do you believe if they're just voicing their opinion? And I think that's where one needs this balance of both the opinions, the perspectives, and also a certain degree of these hard scientific facts where you can say, okay, look, we have been monitoring uh, you know, the fisheries for example in Sri Lanka for, you know, three or four years and we have only encountered x number of these species, whereas when you look at the Maldives or uh, another neighboring country, they are a lot more abundant, you know, through uh, diverse surveys and all that. So, it's it's I think this combination of information that has to be put together and then uh, synthesized in a manner that a policymaker can easily understand it and and appreciate the the seriousness of the issue but I do understand you know also the frustration uh, that you know you're voicing that many other other people voice and I mean honestly when I have those issues sometimes being like you know we have we don't have enough data we have a little bit it's quite obvious what's happening, just do something, you know, but it's, yeah, it's not a very easy thing and and of course politics plays an incredibly large role in all of this and if one doesn't take the time to understand that component, as a scientist you cannot really make change.
0: Yes, I understand, I, I do understand. Tell me, I, uh, I assume being uh, a marine biologist, you do dive, you do scuba dive?
1: Uh, the age-old question. Uh, oh, no, not exactly. I mean, I, I am a scuba diver, yes, for sure. But, you know, I, I just saw a post today on, on Facebook as well where somebody was mentioning very clearly that, you know, just you don't need to be a scuba diver to be a marine biologist. And un- unfortunately, in the work that I have been doing, I don't really get to scuba dive much. I mean, I think in the last two years, I've probably done about four or five dives in total, and the rest of the time, unfortunately, spent either, you know, at uh, fish markets where we collect our data, or at our field station, analyzing data, and then a significant proportion in windowless meeting rooms where, yeah. You're just there talking to policymakers and trying to convince them to make the right choice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. So you get asked this a lot. It's, um, well, the reason I did ask was if you do dive, what you do a bit um, over, I assume several years of diving. I mean, what what are the biggest changes that you've noticed? And also if you are spending Time in fishmongers, in fish markets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, obviously, things must have changed there. Fish must have got rarer, smaller, more expensive. What are, What are the changes? The most remarkable changes that you've noticed?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I I mean, I've been diving for just over maybe twelve or thirteen years now. So you know, not that long. And yeah, I mean. I think underwater it's been a bit harder for me to notice the changes predominantly because I have been fortunate enough to choose where I go diving and when I go diving. And that has usually been, you know, when I've either traveled somewhere special you know, I've I've, I've chosen to go on a particular dive or when I'm diving here in Sri Lanka, it's usually for recreational purposes, in which case, you know, I'm quite selective of where I go. So, you know, from that perspective, I have been fortunate to have pretty good diving experiences but what I would like to touch on are two examples that I remember quite well. One is uh, snorkeling as a child in this uh, one bay that we had in Sri Lanka and that bay reminded me very much of the diving in the Maldives. You had these beautiful clear waters, a wonderful coral reef and there were even a few baby uh, blacktip reef sharks in and I remember going to that site, you know, a few years later, and unfortunately, the entire coral reef had just been completely destroyed. Uh, Not too sure why potentially dynamite uh, fishing or other purposes. And you know, the reef was gone, everything was murky, there was nothing to see. And so that was one of the incidences that I remember quite vividly of damage underwater. And then the other, as you pointed out, are changes that one documents at fish markets or at fishery landing sites, where the boats come and offload their catch. And that has been a lot more apparent and a lot more boring to me, Uh, not just because I spend a lot of time at these places collecting data, but having seen how quickly a change can come about. I I would always recommend every scuba diver to spend some time at a fish market or at a fishery landing site, because you will probably, depending on the country and the fishery, of course, you will probably encounter many more species than you would likely encounter in your entire lifetime scuba diving, which is quite unfortunate, of course. Uh, but it is a good place to document change. And you know in places like Sri Lanka, for example, I've just I mean, I remember when I started surveying the landing sites about eleven years ago. Uh, seeing large numbers of hammerheads was nothing unusual, you know, there was this one particular landing site where you would see about 20 to 30 hammerheads a day. Whereas now we have come to the point where you would see maybe one or two individuals a week, not even a day. So, you know, you've seen this dramatic decline in species numbers. The fishing techniques haven't changed, the fishing locations haven't changed very much fishing effort has either remained stable or has slightly increased because there are more and more fishing boats going out there each day. So that is an incredibly boring trend. And it just goes to show that, and this is something I like to always highlight, is that species like sharks and rays that I spend a lot of time studying are not like other fish. We cannot treat them like a tuna because a tuna gives birth to millions of eggs at a time. A lot of sharks and rays not all but a lot have life cycles that are you know similar to elephants or leopards on land and those are animals that we spend and invest a lot of time into fully protecting and, and taking care of but we're not doing the same for these uh, you know underwater uh, animals and and i think that's where we're kind of lagging not just in sri lanka but at an international scale Is remembering that these you can't just class I mean, yes, they're all fish, but you can't consider them all fish. They have very different reproductive cycles.
0: Yeah, it's, it's from my own experiences. I don't know. I've been diving 48, 49 years or something, and the 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 differences is is so marked. It's it's quite frightening. But once again, looking in, I occasionally go and look in the uh, fishmongers. And again, I'm seeing fish for sale that would never even be considered uh, some years ago, you know, because they were, they were just not that palatable, <laughs> but now they're being eaten. And the thing with fisheries, when you get your local fishery fleets or, or uh, communities, fine, it, it can possibly be sustainable if they stick to traditional methods but as soon as you get the industrial global fishing in then it's a game changer everything disappears. In Sri Lanka do you get those industrial fishing peoples in or are you are you set in fairly well protected waters?
1: So in in Sri Lanka and the Indian Ocean as a whole we have a combination of Artisanal fisheries and the industrial fleets. The industrial fleets are operated predominantly by European uh, countries and also uh, China, Taiwan and uh, Japan to some extent. Um, the The coastal nations and the island nations within the Indian Ocean are predominantly artisanal fisheries, which means They're generally a bit more small-scale in nature, but this is where it gets a bit complicated, you know. Uh, We define them as as small-scale and to some degree a bit more traditional in comparison to these large industrial fleets. But the volumes are very different. So, for example, in Sri Lanka, we probably have, if I remember correctly, somewhere between 20 and 30 vessels that are categorized as commercial or industrial vessels. So that's vessels that are larger than 24 meters in length. But then we have 52,000 registered vessels that are under 24 meters in length uh, that are you know, fishing throughout Sri Lankan waters and also in international waters. Uh, of course, not all 52,000 venture out. I mean, it's a combination of near-shore vessels and offshore vessels. But there are about 4,500 vessels that are under 24 meters so in the artisanal category that are fishing in the high seas and about 20 to 30,000 vessels that are fishing throughout Sri Lanka's EEZ so up to about 200 nautical miles and then you know another 10 to 20,000 that are fishing very near shore so while you know it's easy to classify pretty much you know i would say 999 percent of Sri Lanka's fishery as an artisanal fishing fleet it's the volume or the number of vessels that's really, uh, you know, I would say if you put that all together, it's probably equivalent to a, like a moderately sized, and I'm, I'm just guessing, here. Yeah, I could be completely wrong, but I would imagine it's similar to a small or moderate sized industrial fleet. So that is, you know, uh, something that has to be Taken into consideration when one looks at different fishing fleets across the world, so it's not just whether they categorize as industrial or artisanal, but also how much fishing effort is really being put into uh, fishing. And I think, and I think that's where it gets very complicated, particularly in places like the Indian Ocean, where you have Sri Lankan fleets that go across. Uh, you know, we have had boats that have gone as far as Somalian waters before the piracy issues. Uh, they occasionally get captured in the Seychelles by legal fishing there. Uh, they have gone all the way down to Australian waters or Indonesian waters. So They are far, far reaching and therefore have consequences not just within Sri Lankan waters, but across the region. And yeah, I would probably say that the amount of fishing effort we have at present is probably too high. Uh, there is quite a bit of evidence that our waters to so the Sri Lankan ease that is relatively overfished. Many fishers say that they have to go into the high seas uh, to capture fish. So it's it's definitely a problem, not just unique to Sri Lanka. Of course, many other countries across the Indian Ocean and across the world are having similar issues. And coming again, you know, this requires a lot of diplomatic discussions and compromise between now the established industrial fleets the developing countries that say, look, we're still in the process of developing, we want to get to the point where we potentially have industrial uh, fleets. So it's this whole, yeah, it, it, it's a very complex issue. And and that's what I say, you know, as a scientist, it's very easy to say these species are overfished, do something. But then, you know, the moment you start looking at the number of individuals involved, the stakeholders, the companies, it's it's a very big operation that has to be somehow under regulation and management.
0: Yeah, indeed. Um, are any of the waters around Sri Lanka protected?
1: Unfortunately, uh, Sri Lanka has been lagging a bit behind in uh, marine protected areas. A lot of this was due to the, uh, the civil war that we had here that was uh, going on for about 30 years. Which of course meant that the country had many other priorities. Uh, And then of course, it's a lot easier from a technical perspective to deal with the terrestrial environment than the marine environment for a multitude of reasons. So in Sri Lanka at the moment, out of our entire EZ, we have less than 0.5% that is protected. So it's uh, incredibly low. I mean, we are not You know, I mean, the SDG goal for 2020 was 10%, while the new international targets are, you know, 30% by uh, 2030. So we definitely have a lot that has to be done in the marine realm. The positive news, I would say, is that the government is quite uh, keen to take steps to uh, overcome this issue of limited protected areas and to look at expanding protection. But like I said, it's now coming to a balance of you know how do you take all the all these fishes into consideration their livelihoods, uh, while at the same time protecting areas for the benefit of the
0: species and, in turn, of those livelihoods. But it's
1: yeah, it's a complex issue.
0: With 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 a country like uh, Sri Lanka, I would have thought tourism was um, a huge part of um, the income there. I mean, surely tourism and healthy seas go hand in hand enough to be able to start thinking about it seriously about protecting waters, or, or is that not really taken into consideration? It, it is certainly
1: taken into consideration. Uh, I would say one of the issues, are maybe not really an issue, but a lot of our tourism for a very long time was focusing exclusively on our cultural sites. On our cultural sites and, and on our terrestrial wildlife and this was again I would say largely due to the civil war that prevented many people from venturing out into the water there were a lot of restrictions of time. Uh, that was combined with the fact that a lot of tourist, tourism packages were being sold where tourists would come and spend two or three weeks in Sri Lanka experiencing the culture and then for the beach and the marine section they would usually fly to the Maldives and spend a the week there so the Maldives was always the primary attraction when it came to the underwater world. And that's something that we have to work on to slowly try and attract a bit of that tourism. But what we have to realize is that the product we have here in Sri Lanka is very, very different to what the Maldives has. You know, when it comes to scuba diving, we have very limited uh, seasons because we have the two monsoons that operate. So, you know, the optimal dive uh, you know, optimal window for diving, for example, on the west coast in Sri Lanka, I would say, is about three months. It's you can dive for about six to eight months of the year, but the best time is for about three months. And even during those three months, you're not guaranteed, you know, the amazing visibility that you have in the Maldives. And unfortunately, due to probably a lot of overfishing, but also uh, sort of the topography of our underwater, uh, you know, area around Sri Lanka. Means that we don't have a lot of marine megafauna. Uh, so unlike the Maldives, where they have you know deep waters very close to shore, we have this combination of you know shelves on the west coast that stretch out a bit further offshore, to then the south where it gets deep but incredibly deep, you know to about two thousand meters, uh, just about you know two three kilometers offshore, without you know the beautiful coral reefs that the Maldives has. So. It provides a lot of other opportunities. So, for example, uh, you know, when it comes to the the whales, the dolphins—we have, uh, you know, very high reliability of seeing those animals as a tourist. Uh, but unfortunately, I would say, with other megafauna like whale sharks or manta we don't really have, uh, you know, those consistent enough uh, compared to other countries to be able to market it as a as a tourism alternative. So, the tourism or rather the marine tourism in Sri Lanka has been largely restricted or focused at the moment on, on the whales and to some degree on scuba diving when it comes to the wrecks and all, because we have very good wreck diving in Sri Lanka. Oh, really?
0: I didn't know. Uh, yeah.
1: But of course, as you know, you know that's, that doesn't appeal to all the divers and is, True. you know, somewhat specialized to a certain degree. So yeah, it's, it's not as easy to say that okay, we can potentially let's say reduce fishing significantly and, and transition into sustainable uh, into yeah sustainable ecotourism. It's unfortunately not as easy as that
0: Daniel it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and thank you for um you know all that you've said um one extra thing which is totally different, although. Uh, it all comes together in the end. Pigeon Island Tropical Wear. I just caught, caught, got my eye again on your site. Um, that's clothing or beachwear made from um, upcycled plastic waste?
1: Yeah, so it is, it is a company that is uh, trying to encourage other textile manufacturers that, you know, there are alternatives to the traditional uh, methods used and that upcycling is a method. Uh, so they are, you know, basically looking into this technology where they recycle plastic water bottles. Uh, it goes through a particular process, and then one basically comes out with some sort of a nylon thread that can be used uh, to manufacture, you know, swimwear in particular. Uh, so that is something that they have been doing, and they have been uh, trying to support us in in small ways. Uh, they're not, uh, yeah. So. It is encouraging to see that there are these different uh, companies coming about, trying things in a slightly different manner. But yeah, it's it's a combination of you know, is that making enough of a change, or is there, for example, an issue because you know my my concern always is like, well, people see this as upcycling or recycling of a plastic, and then therefore they don't feel as bad. Uh, about using that particular plastic as as they would previously. So that's a sort of balance that I still haven't figured out to see which way people are leaning towards. Uh, I hope that there is enough awareness out there to realize that the best case is that one doesn't use the plastic at all or that one reuses it as it is as much as possible. Uh, But hopefully, you know, to some degree at least this will help reduce some of the plastic waste that may otherwise end up in the ocean or at least make sure that it gets used one more time before it's discarded.
0: <laughs> that was a, um, an excellent answer. And you, you totally echoed my thoughts. It's um, yeah, it we do kind of sit back on our laurels and say, well, it's being recycled and used into this, but I agree with what you're saying. Let's not use it in the first place. It's, yeah. There are better <laughs> alternatives. Absolutely. Daniel, well, Well, leave it there. And uh, once again, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I just wish you best of luck with all of your future projects.
1: Thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Uh, Thank you, Daniel. Bye for now.
1: See you.